Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hey, everyone. I'm excited for you to hear part one of my two-part conversation with Jamie DeWolf today. He is a very interesting and unique man who I spoke with almost two years ago at the very beginning of this podcast. He helped to kind of launch it along with some other significant guests, and I am very happy to have him back on the show. We've been in touch here and there, checking in with each other, and I had this thought that kind of popped into my head, and I said, hmm, I'd like to be able to talk to Jamie about this and have him back on the show. So Jamie DeWolf is a wordsmith, which you will hear and enjoy. He's an entertainer, a vaudevillian, a filmmaker, writer, humanitarian, activist, teacher, and father. And he also happens to be the great-grandson of L. Ron Hubbard. Here's Jamie now. Hey, Jamie. Hello. How are you? I'm good. (laughs) Good. It's really good to see you. It's been a long time. And um, the last time people got to hear from you, but they didn't get to to see you. And I'm so glad they're able to do both this time and that you're back on the podcast. You were um, one of the originals on the podcast, which I was really excited about. And it was a great talk. And so I'm curious just to have you fill everyone in on what you've been up to. I know you just sit around doing nothing all day and, you know, (laughs) so I'm sure you have nothing to talk about. But anyway, go through the list of maybe the 40 latest things, 40 latest projects you've been working on. Uh, Well, I'm a filmmaker and a performer. So lately, I just got back from the reservation and doing a documentary on Navajo Nation. And I'm also working on some various grant project films that are documentaries on different public art spaces programs. So art that involves a community and usually uses space and some kind of uh, communal impact. And so I've been working on some of those projects, finishing the screenplay, putting on a lot of shows um, in the past couple months, I would say. Um, And February is where everything starts to cook up again. It's January now, and January is traditionally pretty slow Mm -hmm. for performance world. A lot of people are hibernating, which is great because then I just sort of switch into film mode where I get a lot of editing and writing done. So that's what I'm working on. Okay. And your life is good? Life is good. Mm -hmm. Mm, Very nice. Very nice. So uh, I wanted to be able to go over so many things, but there was this idea, uh, not that we necessarily have to talk about cults, but sort of why not start there? I had had this phrase pop into my head many months ago that I kind of floated your way, like maybe one day I'd love to talk to you about this. And it was this catnip for cult leaders. I don't know why it popped into my head, but I thought, yeah, who do they search for? Who do they love being able to target? What turns them on? What gives them that buzz? And so what is their, what's their catnip? And also what keeps them going? Um, Because yeah, I've come across some who really are just not well. And so they get people kind of involved in their psychosis and yep. that becomes a group, but there are others who are just so much more sophisticated and complicated than that. So I was curious just to start there. What do you think the catnip is? I think a lot of it is disguised narcissism. I mean, one of the biggest tricks of cults is making you feel that you're empowering yourself 
while you're ultimately giving your money, your time, your focus, and your praise towards an individual. Yeah. And that's everything from Nexium to Jim Jones to Elrond. It's that it goes into a lot of phrases about we and us, but there's usually one person giving those phrases. There's one person who's the conduit. And it's really everything flipped on its side. I mean, if someone just came out and they said, I'm making a cult celebrating me, it would never work. I think a lot of people really misunderstand that right from the get-go. They're like, how come people don't know they're in a cult? How come people don't see that this is an obvious cult leader? And that's because those people, they, they never start by presenting it as about them. It's always about giving you power, you wisdom, you clarity, uh, a new sense of emotional stability. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, you, you look at Nexium, for example, which I've definitely been obsessed with because it's like a weird, evolved, compressed version of Scientology in some respects. And it's really all about self-betterment, but it's really all about Keith Renary. You know I mean? That he is the focal point. Mm -hmm. He never really says that this is about me, even though he's called the vanguard and Elrond is called source. You know I mean? That they're, yeah. they're never the god of this creation, but they act as if they are and they're celebrated as if they are. And it's this whole disguised narcissism of basically you hide behind something that's selfless and is absolutely profiting you. I think the catnip for a lot of them is, is basically having that sort of arrangement where people are grateful to you for giving them the keys to this new land of, of opportunity and, and, and emotional control that you alone hold. And mm -hmm. I think that that's the devil's bargain and that's where it starts, is that when you're able to convince people of that, then you're already on the road. I mean, it, it really starts with just basically saying, don't you want to be a better person? Don't you wish that you could get rid of these pathologies, these things that hold you back and, and hang, you know, and so that you step forward and you basically say, I am trying to help you. Let me help you. And that any resistance that you have to that, a resistance of being control or debating who this individual is who's claiming to have this special secret knowledge. And it's all built into it so that you already have counters to, you know, basically present all of the opposition against you from the get-go. You know, with Scientology, it's that psychiatry is trying to stop us. With Nexium, it said these are all these other movements that are trying to stop us because they don't want you to have access to this kind of insight. But I alone control this insight. You know, you look at something like Jonestown, for instance, and that uh, that was all about the community. You know what I mean? It was it was though it was literally called Jonestown, um, but I mean it was the people's temple. It wasn't Jim Jones and acolytes you know what i mean it's it's but i mean you look at it from an objective standpoint and you're like well of course this this is the person driving it you know what i mean if this person dies then the whole thing evaporates yeah. and uh unless there's some kind of infrastructure that continues it forward similar to uh scientology but i mean you know david miscavige stepped into that role in kind of a different way and then eventually ended yeah. up taking on that mantle and embodying it and basically becoming the same role of that I am the conduit, you know, where David Miscavige is not Elrond, but he's the conduit to keeping the information accurate and Scientology working, right? 
And so that's right. where people start to fall. I mean, I think that the, you know, intoxicating element for all of the co-leaders in general, if you had to sort of like, you know, line them up in some sweet little club is it starts with this intense narcissism that, you know, usually is like on the verge of megalomania, if not outright psychosis and, you know, that sort of kind of manic depressive elements, but that you start with a fictitious biography where it's either outright lies or at the very least distortions and exaggerations. So I think for them, it really starts with having a stronger vision of themselves that then is perpetuated in the minds of others. And it only reinforces it to a point where you're no longer that failure who was rejected years ago. You're now David Koresh, who's, you know, not a struggling guitarist. You're now someone who's actually, you know, has a divine mission and you're getting people in line with that. And I think it also always gets kind of, um, doesn't get looked at enough, but the inner circle in those early days is so key to the longevity of their mission. There's usually power struggles kind of near the start because other people sign on to the sense of community and a sense of we, and they realize pretty quickly that that's not going to be the case. You know what I mean? That they've been sold this line, but that it's absolutely driven by this one individual and is really a manifestation of their will and their kind of persona. So then you find these power struggles in the early days. Um, and then often the leader, the eventual leader, you know, successful and victorious in those struggles and then continues. And then they make this sort of core circle, which are like really kind of their pit bulls and some of the most dangerous people in the organizations because they're the true blue soldiers. And they're the ones that are often on the other side of the rainbow and actually know all of the, the, the issues that are really like actually behind the curtain. You know, these are the people who know all of the lawsuits, all of the enemies, all of the different crises that they have to contain, but at the same time still have this endless devotion to their leader. So I think it's, it's basically these kind of, you know, loner individuals who have figured out some sort of a gambit that will mobilize people Mm-hmm. under this shield of of communal help and uh you know that that you're trying to make a movement together when it's really you the one that's driving it mm-hmm. and that i think that a lot of after that how a lot of them degenerate is into the you know sort of sociopathic perks of sex with members that you can justify for any reason that you want having this sort of muscle to destroy your enemies past and and present and that kind of armada that you can execute against anybody that steps forward. And then after that, it usually just unspools (laughs) pretty quickly. It usually gets to the point where they pretty much follow the, the same story arc of every other gangster and everything where it's like, if they're not careful, then they just become power hungry and you overstep, you know, you take it too far. You're too brutal towards your opposition. You are too greedy with, uh, you know, how you're devouring the assets of your members and the sexual dynamics and all of that. And and that's where they start to start to fall. Okay, right. So <laughs> that's fantastic. 
what I find is so interesting also about this inner circle, I'm thinking about R. Kelly. Yeah, you see the same dynamic happen over and over. You know, and R. Kelly is a great example, a very kind of low rent example in some ways. <laughs> Sorry just to jump in while I'm thinking of it, but I noticed that even in his tweets that he's used to defend himself, he's constantly stating like, we, you know, it's, it's like, you know, they're not going to take us down like that, mm-hmm. you know? And then you start to also, if you don't have a community, um, then you start to really reach, you know, and he's like, this is a, you are lynching a black man, you know, the, the trying to mobilize the African-American community behind him. Um, and, you know, you kind of pick your different shields that way you're not, what is pretty naked when you look at the hard facts of, which is one person who's kind of greed and their sort of carnivorous ego is the one that's constantly devouring this. And everybody else is falling in line a lot of times because of money. You know, Ed R. Kelly is a perfect example. A lot of that was money. Yeah, a lot of it is money. And I think, you know, when you have people right around you, which narcissists do, who will consistently feed your ego and also keep your secrets, Right. then you have this cushion and you have people also who will not only do it for you, but they're going to do it for themselves because they don't want to lose that standing. They want to be able to look good in your eyes, but they probably at that point also have seen what you do with people and to people who disappoint you. Right. And so there are people who are not necessarily so devoted, but are too scared to not seem devoted. Right. Right. I mean... I think I've always been fascinated with Jonestown for a myriad of reasons. But one thing that I think that gets also gets lost a lot, I think we talked about this a little last time too, is but it's super fascinating to me as a as a performer who's done a lot of circus and vaudeville, is that he had these crazy vaudeville sort of acts that they would perpetuate all the way up until the end. Um, literally when the, what was the, the senator, the congressman, yeah, Leo Ryan, yeah, that they perpetuated the same silly, almost laughable tricks of putting people in costumes and wheeling them up in the wheelchair and doing this fake healing of them. And then having these like fake tumors that were like chicken livers that they'd come back with and say like, I've been cured. And that he had this sort of old bad theater version that was kind of going all the way to the end. But that to me always stuck with me because it's like he had his own little theatrical ensemble that was absolutely perpetuating this over and over that the people that put the costumes on, went in the bathroom, got the chicken liver, you know, that did the whole nine. And they not only held the secret, they continued the secret, but also they knew that his so-called miracles were fake because they were helping perpetuate him. And the excuse and the rationale that pretty much all of them had was that we are, well, in Jonestown specifically, they were like, you know, Jim has to save his true miracles for when they're really needed. This is just like basically a a kind of spectacle in order to just convince people of what's the larger truth, which is that he can absolutely do these things. He's just choosing not to today to save his energy or whatever. Um, And that they... they, uh, but the, the, those folks never, you know, no one really talks about them enough. Um, the people that would go into these different houses and uh, one would distract someone in the living room while they're going through their trash and trying to find medical bills and their social security numbers so that, you know, Jim Jones could call them out like a vision from God. And, but all of their rationale was the same as what you hear over and over is that the end justifies the means. You know what I mean? That we are, I'm, I'm doing this small crime because the larger mission of saving the world, saving humanity is 
more important. And so I'm going to help with whatever little masquerades is necessary because overall we're on the side of good and we're trying to change the world. Um, with something like R. Kelly, I think that that's also a good reason why he's fallen the way he has is because he had really kind of only money, right? And so he has a tremendous amount of money and he's instrumental for making millions and millions and millions. Uh, I forget what the estimate, I think someone even said it was like almost like a billion dollars for his record company. And so he was useful. So, I mean, he's making other people money and then that's going to come with its own levels of protection and fixers and the record label is going to have its own kind of inner circle. And when the record label dropped him, that's when it was over. You know what I mean? That's when he yeah. he had no more shield. He had no more cover. Yeah. And then people start to be like being like, oh man, like, you know, if I, if I ride this ship all the way down mm -hmm. you know what i mean that i'm gonna get implicated in these crimes as well and we can't really hide behind this just like he's a sexy musician and this is art and you know and everything else is that it it really becomes about around this one guy and his sexual proclivities yeah it you know you're reminding me in terms of the 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 costumes and i think with R. Kelly also just sort of seeming like he has it all together. You know, he's never had a, a feather ruffled except during an uh, interview on TV where he just got freaked out by being called on the things that he actually did, which narcissists yeah. have a record of hating when they're actually called on the things they actually did. Yeah. Um, you know, how dare you? How dare you accuse me of the thing I did? But the costuming, it's reminding me of the Sea Org uniforms, the whole sort of the pomp and circumstance, the thing that makes it look a certain way or that that um, instills a certain emotion in other people. There's also a woman who was on the podcast who was talking about her, her um, swami who had said that they all needed to have dreadlocks. And so overnight for a big televised thing, he needed to have dreadlocks. So she was there in the room when hairdressers were coming in and putting in hair extensions. <laughs> and so he could look camera ready, like he had just sort of developed these magically overnight. Uh, but also with the people in the room, you're right. They didn't think to, to think, you know, there's something really off about this necessarily. It was, this is for the greater good. This is going to help people feel that he is magical in some way and are and they're going to then be attracted to him which is which is so incredible i i wanted to go back also to something you said you know um this expression that i've heard that i love uh the humble brag mm -hmm. and when people do this humble brag i love i see it a lot you know uh on facebook and other places you know um uh, i'm so proud to say that, you know, this organization has decided to honor me, even though, you know, that's not why I did it. <laughs> but here's a picture of the whole ceremony. Facebook is like trained all of us how to do the humble brag. I mean, I'm 10,000% guilty of the humble brag because <laughs> especially if you're an artist or a performer or whatever, there's, there's, you have to promote yourself, mm -hmm. right? In some way. And so you try to figure out some way that's not as nakedly transparent as like, Hey, listen to this. Okay. I just won an award. I'm fucking awesome. I'm killing it right now. You know, it's it's pretty difficult to try to find that sort of middle ground. Uh, yeah, so the humble brag is a big, big part of it. So it's, it's part of human nature because, yeah, we still want people to know if there's something we're proud of or if there's something we think they could benefit from that we're doing or whatever else. But it gets so dramatic 
with cult leaders. You know, I'm sacrificing my life for you, my health for you. I could be doing anything else, which is usually not true. Usually cult leaders don't have day jobs. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so you need to focus, you know, <laughs> focus and your money to focus. Mm hmm. Yeah. So but then I think people feel this sort of this reciprocity that, oh, this person is being so self-sacrificial. Well, not self-sacrificial, but just fully sacrificial, you know, in response, which is really very interesting. And I think when they show themselves, when the cult leaders show themselves in a raw way, people are taken aback when they see the ego. Right. I mean, uh, try to imagine someone like Adolf Hitler, you know, in the day, if he had Facebook back in the day, like how he would <laughs> he would post uh, his own humble brags, you know, as he's moving up in the Nazi party is like, you know, very proud to announce I've been chosen as the speaker at the next beer hall. Uh, you know, y'all should come out and support, you know, support us. We're on a movement. We need you. You know, Hitler kind of famously, even amongst the Nazis was like, they would sort of brag to each other on how Hitler had taken sort of almost a vow of chastity because he was so focused on the German people that he could not have a wife or a girlfriend. And that's why Eva Braun was like hidden away a lot of the time because that's that's also mm-hmm. part of the ruse mm-hmm. too, is that I'm superhuman in some ways. I have more focus than you. I have more attention, more detail, more time. And, you know, you see that with just kind of absurd just the whole cult of personality in general is that, you know, step one is that I am different than you. Um, and the bridge that I'm making to make this movement is that I'm not just some amazing genius who's going to go into a warehouse and just create. And that's what I'm going to do. And, and, you know, I'll come out with stuff when I'm ready, like a Tesla or somebody is a good example who didn't really have a cult of personality so much Mm. versus someone like Edison, who was actually very much almost like a cult leader. He's like, you know, very aggressive in destroying his, you know, competitor Tesla um, and pushing his, his idea. And there's a sense of like, I'm a genius, but I'm trying to help you and I'm trying to help the world. And I'm, you know, devoting myself to it. And even Steve Jobs, it's like, uh, he has such this cult of personality about it, which is, also really strange, you know, because even if you read about him, for example, um, you know, he had his inner circle and he didn't even create all of the things. I mean, he had teams and designers and and the nine and he sort of gets handed this bizarre mantle that gets promoted um, by a company that continues to profit off of that model. I mean, I'm obviously talking on a Mac right now, but I mean, is that it, it perpetuates, if it pays to keep up that sort of, you know, amazing myth that this person was special and that they need to be given different kind of, uh, uh, a different kind of respect and different kind of allowances um, because they were so special and unique. And that can explain and, 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 and rationalize all of these different awful things about the human being or whatever. Because in the end, it's like, but I gave this to you, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the kind of, it's it's all sort of like everything is opposite. You know, you have narcissists who pretend to be the most selfless individual that there is on the planet and that it's all about them, but it's all about you, you know, and that they're, they often, a lot of times will also masquerade that they aren't making any money off it at all. You know what I mean? That's a, that's a big one. 
Um, that happens all the time. They're like, I don't make a single cent off this. And everyone's like, wow. And he's like, you know, I make the same as you, if not even less, you know, and that kind of thing. Though, to be fair, some of them did have some pretty impressive work ethics, you know, um, Elrond would pipe his ass off. Uh, Jim Jones was, you know, especially when he was all on, all sped out, was just giving yeah. endlessly long sermons, you know, recorded and live and, you know, so. I think there's also like this crossing point that doesn't really get talked about is like when they start to really break with reality to a point that I think that they, they start to believe their own biography Mm -hmm. um, in a way that in the back of their head, they know that some of it is still, they have to know some of it is false because of the way that they attack their opponents that come after them. Right. Where, you know, they're like, Hey, I actually found these, high school records of yours. I have pictures of you as a child and you didn't grow up here, et cetera. But I think oftentimes when that happens, they've reached such a level of fame and power that they deal incredibly aggressive with changing that narrative. But at that point, they've also been living in this other world where it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, they're like, I'm special and therefore should be treated special. And they start to make it happen. People are like, well, I mean, you must be elite and like an alpha to be to have all this money to have this house to you know etc and just by sheer cult of personality is is impressive how you can really kind of force your way through stuff that is often glaringly obvious um you know i've, I've just uh, been really fascinated with uh Elizabeth Holmes and Thanos, uh, who basically created this amazing empire off something that never worked, <laughs> that never worked. And she was just so determined to say that this machine that I've invented with our proprietary technology can take one you know, drop of blood and do all these tests. And medical professionals at the very start of it were like, this is almost impossible. You know, I mean, this is this is like bio, there's a reason why this hasn't been able to have been done before. And she was mm-hmm. like, no, we are doing this. This is what we're doing. And she was able to make this happen for like seven plus years and get national contracts really kind of by sheer force of personality where people really bought into this kind of Steve Jobs sort of cobbled together persona, which she even tailored to wear the turtlenecks and to you know, to dress the role and to become this archetype that would have become an archetype at that point. Uh, and, but I mean, it covered up all of the obvious stuff that were already there in her bio, that she had no medical training, that this thing had never worked, that there was a reason why it had never been invented. You know what I mean? Like you're able to sort of flip everything on its side and be like, well, that's why it's never been invented because no one has been me, you know, no one has been me to make this happen. Right. You know, and then finally they call the bluff. I mean, that's science. So problem is with science is it has to actually do something. Um, and you have to verify it with evidence. So the kind of doom was written into that recipe early on. But, you know, and I think that Scientology is very similar. It started as a science. And once they quickly realized that none of it was, you know, going to be able to be proved or verifiable or have any case studies or evidence or anything, then you just flip it into a religion so that all of that stuff that's glaringly obvious, that's already there in the record of these first clears, right? That Elrond was was bragging about, the first clears who are not superhuman people. I mean, it was a huge flaw in the whole kind of design of what they're bragging about. It's like he's bringing on the first clears and like, 
you know, and people are, there's that classic embarrassment where people are asking him, you know, what color took for him the first clear to close his eyes. And then what color was Elrond's tie, you know, things like that. He was standing next to him on stage and the guy couldn't remember. And, you know, cause they're trying to test this sort of superhuman qualities. So then the science starts to fall apart. And so then you turn it into a religion and then those same absolutely verifiable events that are already there in the record for anybody to find, you flip those on your head and you're like, well, those folks weren't able to do that because they hadn't taken on these extra levels that we're now inventing. And so it's kind of a constant sense of, of counter moves, you know, and I think that, that, that always attack, never defend Maxim from Scientology is always really stuck with me in, in terms of watching how the president deals with his enemies, um, how a lot of these different kinds of cults react is that you, you know, there's no soul searching or accountability um, because you're, you have to be a hundred percent right. And so anybody who steps against you has to be absolutely crushed and smashed. And it's a kind of a tiring magic trick, I have to imagine, um, from some of these <laughs> cult leaders to kind of keep all of these kind of counter narratives in your head straight. You know, who you were, how you started, um, your inner circle that have left, um, why they are now mortal enemies, you know, even though that they're your biggest flag carriers before you know, how Scientology treats Mike Rinder and Leah Ramini. And you know what I mean? That these used to be like on the front lines and then now they're like your mortal enemy. So like how you constantly are just like reflecting and spiraling out these different counter narratives. Right. Okay. So I just took about four pages of notes while you're talking. I, uh, I, I am well aware that I just endlessly sort of riff on this subject. I think sometimes it's uh, the past year or so, I think I haven't really uh, talked that much about cults and stuff i had like you know like three years if not more just being so knee deep in the subject yeah yeah i don't mean to sort of bring you back into a subject that you've been taking a break from and purposeful break i know sometimes that we all need to do that and coming up in my life i'll probably need to do that too for a while but yeah uh moving on when you have someone i think who is so sure like this woman you were talking about l ron hubbard so sure and so charismatic, um, there is something that really feeds this grandiosity that becomes so much like that kind of catnip that I do think it becomes hard after a while for them to re really know what's true and what's not because it doesn't matter anymore. And so, for example, with this woman where, you know, she's working on something and it really doesn't work. She can tell a lot of stories. Well, it needs a certain amount of time to really perfect it. And we won't know until this and that test. And it has to be 47 degrees out or whatever other things, you know, it can be or it has to be. And uh, someone didn't do it quite right. It's always something else. Right. And there's an endless stream of that. Yeah. But you are so focused on not wanting to back down because you haven't needed to before. So it's almost like it would be kind of this impossibility to assume that really what you need to do is kind of um, say, okay, I, I think I need to admit here, I think I need to be an adult. I think I need to be a grown up and say, okay, I think I was wrong. But that's not something in some people's lexicon. It's also not for some people, something they've ever had to say or something they think their ego is gonna be able to actually survive 
mm-hmm. if they say, because it's going to be so incredibly difficult. That whole thing also about in Scientology, the always attack, never defend. I, I see it as this sort of arrow that the arrow is always pointed outward. And so, so many people have that kind of energy. Well, it's because of you or it's because like with Trump, it's the media. Right. And so I think that just becomes so much of that energy where people just back down. It's like if, I, I think I may have told you this story, but before the Lee Remedy show started, Mike Rinder uh, and I had a Skype conference, which is not private. We were just you know, catching up. But the last time I had seen his face, he was in my face <laughs> and he was yelling. And he was in people's faces who were at a conference who had just left Scientology. And, and when I saw his face on my screen, I kind of backed up a little. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, I get, I get that a lot. Uh, and now he's on our, on our team. But he was definitely an attacker. And now I think feels so much happier with himself because he feels like he has this humanity back where he can then not have to be on the attack. It's, it's like being in this world where you come home and something is broken in the house. And the only one who was in the house was your teenage kid. And you say, Hey, I see that you broke the whatever. And they say, no, I didn't. You know, you don't have a pet. There wasn't an earthquake said like a Californian. And so there's no other way for it to have broken. But not only do they say, no, I didn't. They'll start yelling at you. How dare you accuse me of this? What's wrong with you as a parent? And that can be the thing that really sidelines you. And I think this other catnip piece is when people know that they are getting you on this lateral track, right. they're getting you off topic. They're, they're sort of having you back away from them needing to take responsibility. I think it's, it is really intoxicating. Well, it's exhausting to have to battle someone on two fronts at the same time. You know, if you're approaching a Scientologist or whatever, and you're attempting to like, I don't know, just express any kind of the facts or the record or whatever, and, and you're confronting them. Well, if they're com- absolutely flipping it on you, you're both on like offense and defense simultaneously. And it's really the opposite of any kind of conflict resolution. You know I mean? Like that's pretty much what you learn in any sort of relationship, like uh, uh, therapy or anything like that, you know, couples counseling um, is that you're basically like, Okay, well, what is the main problem of an argument is that if you if you both are yelling at each other, literally no one's listening. And it's like, you, you might as well not even be talking. And the best way to resolve something is that, you know, for people to at least feel that they've been heard and that, you know, you mirror that back and you reflect it back so that they actually understand that they've been heard. And then you can still disagree, but like you're having a much more sane and sensible conversation. You know, so I think that it's, Always attack is just a very easy way to steamroll through anything. And it also shuts people's heads down about having to look at the nuances of the issue. I think what's really disturbing is when you really think about some of these firebrands or Trump, for example. Um, If Trump was 100% right, which he says he is, (laughs) you know, and the media was in it, I try to imagine sometimes what is their utopia. You know what I mean? What would. What would the pre- what would America look like if Donald Trump got everything the way he wanted? You know what I mean? That the media wasn't in opposition. Everybody agreed with them. You know what I mean? It's like, what does that world look like? If you kind of take things to the nth degree, right. America obviously is a complicated question. But I mean, like something like cults, it's a lot of times transparent 
in the manifesto in the you know the bible of whatever it is and so you know scientology is to have a clear planet where basically everybody's a scientologist you know and other cults are maybe more insular where it's basically we survive the upcoming apocalypse and then rule the planet or whatever it is but i think that that sort of opposition is also built in right away i think that a lot of people when they think of cults they also always forget sort of the main ingredient which is your enemy that you can't really have a great <laughs> by great i mean successful cult without having a very kind of clearly defined nebulous enemy that is always attacking is always moving in the shadows and is just as absolute in their viewpoints on crushing you and ending it all as you are in your beliefs so i mean with scientology there'd be you know psychiatrists who are trying to lobotomize and put every man woman and child in electric shock therapy and that even extends into the sci-fi theology of having these crazy like galactic confederacies that are trying to take over the planet and you know make us slave vessels and whatever all, all of that madness but i mean it's very clear coming in in your first steps that there's someone that's always trying to stop this secret knowledge and it's integral to have that at a very early level so that you are already starting to police things yourself and that you're like oh i you know i'm starting a scientology and someone's like that's that religion's insane have you even seen this or watched this and they're like oh that's that's that stuff i've been hearing about that's probably been funded by the blah, blah, blah community and this, this, that, because they're trying to stop this secret knowledge. If you don't have that enemy clearly defined, then you're going to lose uh, because people are going to start to use critical thought. They're going to start to, you know, do some basic research like they would over any sort of like product, <laughs> you know, like a consumer reports of religion or something like, well, let's look at a couple different opinions. So you want to shut down those opinions as quickly as possible ahead of time yeah. so that yeah. people have their blinders on and they'll just bulldoze through it. I mean, I grew up Baptist Christian and that was easy. Is it like any time that you're questioning Christianity, it's that that's because Satan is whispering in my ear. So Satan was much more clear as a manifestation and hell was always much more vivid than heaven. You know, heaven was sort of like this kind of white, happy land where you sing a lot but i mean there wasn't really like that defined it was just everything's awesome in heaven the war has to be kind of clearly defined and it gets asked really early on is which side are you on and that any kind of ambiguity is snuffed out right away and you see that in patriotism you know people start to question what happened in 9-11 or ask questions and it's just shut down with like to even ask those questions is unpatriotic patriotic, which side are you on? You know, and you see that kind of mentality happen so quickly that I think people just don't even think that they're, they're doing it. And I think that it's really making things absolutes um, as quickly as possible and clearly defining them is that it's, it's really just us versus them. And you're with us, you know? And so even if you have weaknesses, you have problems, you have doubts, we will handle that with us internally, but I mean them that they're just going to try to corrupt you to, you know, whatever fill in the blank awfulness that they'll do. And so that's the kind of opposition that you come up against. It's the kind of uh, 
you know, insanity that you deal with, that, that sort of mentality. You're watching that with the Trump impeachment stuff now where it's like, it never happened, you know, and then they're like, okay, if it did happen, it doesn't matter. And then he can do whatever he wants. And these are all lies, you know? And so there's not even an interest to look at evidence about it because you, you have to get in early in the chain of logic to have them make up their minds for you. And it pays dividends endlessly. This is fascinating. I'm so glad you brought this up because there it's reminding me of that expression. I don't know who originally said it. So if anyone listening knows, please let us know uh, that there's nothing as unifying as a common enemy. Right. And so, right. That I think that people then have this sense it's same thing with siblings, you know, if they can kind of like trash one and side with the other and you know, that, that gets a lot of play. Um, but someone breaks into your house, you're on the same side immediately. You know what I mean? So yeah, ex- exactly. And I, yeah. So right. So right away, there is an enemy. Right away, there are issues around trust. It's also such a deflection because then you think the person who is telling you about who you can trust and who you can't then is saying that because they care about you. So you then think you can trust them, right. even though they're playing you and you don't realize it because now you're focused outward. Also, I never thought about this, but while you were talking, I was thinking that what's so insidious, not only about what happens within culture groups and also pathologically, it's narcissistic relationships, is that not only do you have the sense that you have people on the outside who are the enemy, but also somehow you're the enemy, that you can't be trusted, that somehow there's something wrong with you, or you're going to let yourself down unless you stay with this, or you're never going to find someone else who will love you in the same way. So you might as well. Stay yeah. There. You know, it's right. It's really fascinating that you like turn, you learn to turn on you as well. Yeah. Well, it's, you make it about, um, as you know, as someone who's definitely been in some, some toxic relationships on both sides where, you know, they've been horribly toxic and I've been horribly toxic. Yeah. The easiest thing to do when you're a piece of shit um, which I certainly have been in, especially in my earlier relationships, is that you are any kind of insecurities, anything that you're out of control on, you blame the other individual for because then it puts it in their court and then they have to debate with their own insecurities and their own instability and what they're not in control of. And in toxic relationship, what you guys aren't in control of usually is you know, your attraction to the other individual, um, that your sort of chemistry and whatever got you there in the first place could sometimes feel uncontrollable. And so these toxic relationships is that someone learns to try to take that control and you get this sense that like, you know, you're never going to love like this. Someone's never going to love you the same way that they do, that though they may be abusive and fucked up, that they are, you know, that's because they're so passionate and, you know, that that's in some way your fault. I mean, I think it's also that you make this deflection um, because everybody's fucked up. You know, everybody is a kind of a walking mess. Um, and some people hide it better. Some people have more in control. Um, some people are, are just, you know, more well balanced, uh, whatever. There obviously there's a scale of that, you know, and but I think that people who are, are, are wrecks are often, you know, searching for that kind of person that has that kind of balance to balance them out. Mm. And if it starts to tilt the other way, they're going to blame the person opposite. You know what I mean? It's, it's just constantly like flipping it 
back and forth. And the only way to, you know, for anybody to mature or grow or to have any kind of like a real actual relationship is where accountability, you know, it's like, where you're like, okay, we are both responsible for this. You know, this is what I did wrong. This is what I, if I don't, if I'm not accountable about this, then we're never going to move forward. Or if we do, it's going to be some distorted sham of a relationship. I think that um, something to come back to a lot, and I talk about this um, us and them and the enemy thing is also, is I think some people also neglect thinking about the war mentality that's crucial to having any of these cults work. Because if you look at any actual war, the first thing that people are asked of is to basically relinquish your basic rights because we're in war now and you have to sacrifice something if we're going to win. You know, so if that means that your communications are controlled, you're, uh, you're watched more carefully, that you need to turn in the people next to you and everyone's kind of put on high alert. You know, that sort of war mentality is really beat into you early on in a lot of these cults as you start to move into it. Um, and you make this, you know, muggles and magic users sense of, of like, we are the special, we are the chosen, you have been allowed into this. You may have some sort of initiation process or whatever in order to earn your way to this status, or you might pay your way into it or whatever. And then once you're on that other side, then you start to be told, you know, you're told very quickly about this whole other world of the muggles, of the infidels, of the, you know, the sinners, the corruptors, the whatever, the, the other invading forces. And so that it puts you on high alert. Um, it makes you less cognizant and aware of what's happening on your side and to look at how these folks are actually manipulating you because you're focused outward. And so that kind of sense is huge of uh, putting people in that war mentality. And you see it with, and, and the justification for, which is the progressive justifications for doing awful behavior towards other people because it's endlessly justified of that's what we have to do. You know, I mean, that's, that's war, you know, people are going to die in war. There's collateral damage. You know, if someone is coming against your cult and you need to go and crush that journalist or that, you know, ex member, then it must be done. Even if you do or don't feel good about it because of the larger goal that you need to win this war. And so it allows people to enact as kind of crazy soldiers um, and to just be, you know, tunnel vision. And it's when you start asking of like, why are we fighting this war? Has anybody talked to the other side? Is there any kind of negotiations? You know, you start asking those questions. That's where things start to unschool, you know? Um, they start to fall apart theologically, you know what I mean? That's, that's like what's more dangerous than anything is that gray zone of where people are able to kind of be from your side. I mean, I think that's why all cults, attack their ex-members so viciously, um, probably more than almost anybody else, because they know that that person has the vernacular and the language to walk someone through the other side. You know what I mean? That they are a middle ground to be like, hey, look, I've been on the other side. I've been on your side, but this war is not what you think it is. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that that war mentality is, is huge because I think people always get lost when they look at cults on they look at the sort of basics of, okay, there's a charismatic figure um, that, you know, what defines it is that they try to control you and take your money. But I think they miss some of the other ingredients because if you don't have those ingredients, you're not going to have 
uh, a full on, you know, cult. <laughs> like you're not gonna, you might have like a, uh, you know, a, a small business or like a weird little hustle. Um, and that's always an element and really kind of the money is the God in that. But once the money's gone, you're not able to keep people anymore. Um, you know, but when it comes to, uh, when it comes to these kinds of cult mentalities, belief systems that makes us hard to shake is that's a lot of it. I mean, you hear about like, uh, I think you can learn that from talking to people who are raised in the cult, right? Is that like, they may not know all of the complex belief systems that they are actually indoctrinated into. But I think if you ask most of them, it's pretty clear early on who the enemy is. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, well, you know, if I don't do this, then this and this is going to happen. You know what I mean? There has to be this cause and effect. And that mentality is is pretty huge. Because if you don't have it, you don't have the same sense of control. And people won't fight for you without you being there, commanding them to do it the way that they do in other cults where, well, and also that people are having to fight their own minds in order to, you know, take any steps forward. And that's what I think is the most haunting is you know, what people are wrestling with. One more thing before you go. It's always interesting and a pleasure to speak with Jamie DeWolf. You will get to hear the second part of my conversation with him next week. And you can also hear my original conversation with him around the time that this podcast started almost two years ago, which is unbelievable. It blows my mind. And also another conversation we had that is part of the special content for Patreon subscribers, where he gets into some nitty gritty behind the scenes family secrets. So go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to support the show, to be able to keep it on the air, and also to be able to listen to Jamie's exclusive interview for Patreon subscribers and also any of the other content that's there. I want to talk today about something I brought up with Jamie. This phrase that popped into my head one day, and I thought he would be a great person to kind of tease this out with me, and it's this idea of catnip for cult leaders. Please know that when I say cult leaders, it's also in reference to controllers of any sort, pathological narcissists, sociopaths, very controlling or emotionally manipulative or emotionally abusive people in your life, actually in your life in a variety of contexts whether it be in a relationship or someone you work with or someone you work for, someone who was in your family system while you were growing up, etc., whatever the situation is or was. So just as catnip is something natural that is a kind of grass that makes cats and presumably other animals as well, but mainly cats, react in a way where they're kind of intoxicated and then they're drawn to it in the same way that people are drawn to a drug, I started wondering what would be that kind of catnip for a cult leader or controller? What do they look for? What draws them to you? What gives them that high off of you? I often say, and I'll say it again today, that usually people who are trying to control others are looking for certain kinds of qualities like potential subservience, people who are introspective, people who take responsibility for things, whether it was their fault, whether it was their responsibility at all or not. And then the person controlling them will know that they won't be blamed for things or even held accountable potentially for things they did wrong or things they said wrong. And they love, absolutely love having that out. It's like a safety net for them to know that they can do something wrong and the other person 
might think it's their fault and blame themselves and make a promise to try harder the next time to be somehow better, even though they didn't do anything wrong. Cult leaders do find that this gives them a high, knowing that they're going to have that safety net, that out. But people also will look for certain qualities in you if they're trying to control you. And sometimes those are wonderful qualities, like the ability to become devoted, devoted to an idea, devoted to an ideal, devoted to a person or a belief. Somehow you have this part of your personality where you get kind of pumped up and caught up. And within a cult, that's not a good thing because you're caught up in a high that might bring you outside of the life that you want to be living and in an alternate space where you are no longer able or at liberty to protect yourself. And also, the life that you were promised, well, none of that is happening. And so it's just taking you farther afield from reaching your own goals. And you're so caught up and you're so manipulated that you have these blinders on that they have created for you where you don't notice what's really happening there and how much you're being used or confused or abused. It's like being put in that honeymoon period that we feel at times at the beginning of something exciting where we're not noticing the warning signs in the same way that other people might notice them right away who are not caught up and not swept away. Please remember always that your value should never be based upon how much you sacrifice for another person, but based upon your inherent value as a human being. I will say it again. Please remember always that your value should never be based upon how much you sacrifice for another person, but based upon your inherent value as a human being. Narcissists don't like that message. And narcissists don't like it because they don't like narcissistic withdrawal. That kind of aching emptiness and terror sometimes that comes from having this moment where they think the person they're controlling is no longer fully intimidated by them and can no longer kind of be completely devoted to them, doesn't fall for their lies anymore, and isn't completely just focused on them, but might have divided allegiance and might be missing other people and might be focused on suddenly other things when they, the narcissist, need to know that you are completely focused on them and no one and nothing else. It becomes such a primal and painful feeling for them that they can't work their magic, but they will work hard to get you back on track to fill their emotional needs. And they will work hard to try to see your renewed devotion, your renewed unquestioning loyalty and belief, and your renewed self-sacrifice and your renewed service to them. And that's part of their drug. But here's the secret. That while they cultivate this high in you, you are actually their drug. A lot of people say that they felt that being involved in a controlling environment like a cult or in a relationship with a narcissist, at least at first, felt very much like being intoxicated, being on a high. But you're also feeding your controller's emotional drug habit. You are the catnip. It's good to remember that. And I say that in an empowering way. Because if you remember that, you see in that moment and hopefully remember in that moment that you're the one with the power. You're the one who can keep them from getting their fix if you pull away. And while they won't like it, and they'll let you know that, and they'll try to scare you into not pulling away, and they will try to manipulate you more 
to try to get you to stay devoted. And their threats of punishment will become more intense. All of these kinds of techniques, though, all of these kinds of reactions to you pulling away should give you insight into just how powerful you are because it shows you just how scared they are about losing their drug of choice, which is you. You hold the power. You hold the power to not feed their habit and make them drunk with their power over you. They don't deserve it. They come across as strong and as intimidating, but this is a sign of weakness. If these controllers were actually truly strong and confident and knew how to live their lives without needing to take advantage of other people, and knew how to build themselves up without needing to drain energy off of other people in order to increase their own, then I would see them as strong people who I respect. Otherwise, they're just very clever and manipulative and ultimately insecure and fearful emotional addicts. Talk to you next week. I'm excited to say that this podcast is now available on additional platforms. If you want to listen to Indoctrination, it's available for download on the NPR Radio Public app, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. We now have a big library of content that you can access with any donation. And subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.